0: Hello everyone, welcome to Independent Animation, brought to you by Squiggly Online Animation Magazine, a series that focuses on the world of indie animation and its notable talents. This is Ben Mitchell, Editor-in-Chief at Squiggly, and author of the Squiggly tie-in book Independent Animation, Developing, Producing, and Distributing Your Animated Films which this podcast accompanies, building on the concepts, practices and case studies featured in the book and catching up with the folks involved in it about what they've been up to since. For this episode, I am really excited to bring you a chat with Sean Buckaloo, who previously featured in Episode 2 of Independent Animation as part of the Indie Animation Collective Late Night Work Club which he directed the film Love Streams, a touching shared fantasy set in the early 2000s about strangers who've come to know and perhaps love one another through online chat. Having received an MFA in Experimental Animation from the California Institute of the Arts and a BFA from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, Sean has since worked on projects including We Are Your Friends, Consuming Spirits, and the Annie Award-winning animated sequences of He Named Me Malala. His commercial work includes projects for clients spanning Disney Channel, MTV, Arctic Monkeys, VH1, Adult Swim, and Apple Podcasts. And he's continued to make personal work such as 2019's I'm Not a Robot, the upcoming I Am a Robot, and his most recently finished film Drone, which will be released online Sunday, February 5th. Produced by frequent collaborator Jeanette Janin of the Glass Animation Festival, which Sean is also involved with, drone takes on themes of artificial intelligence, remote warfare, the news media, social media, periodolia, and politics in its story of a predator drone installed with an ethical AI personality that malfunctions during a crucial press event and goes rogue, embarking on a philosophical and existential odyssey as the world looks on. The film is really something, not just in terms of its visuals and production quality, but also the assuredness of the script, voice performances, and orchestral score, courtesy of Skilbard, who often worked with Sean on his films. To me it feels like it could be an episode of some wonderful animated anthology series that doesn't yet exist, and it was a real privilege to screen it at the most recent edition of the Manchester Animation Festival as part of our Squiggly screening. Other festivals you might have it at include Annecy, where it premiered, as well as Sitges, Ottawa, and Liaf. So let's go ahead and hear from Sean Buckaloo, director of Drone. Sean, thank you very much for talking with Squiggly again. It's great to catch up. Uh, We have spoken to you before, but for folks just coming in at this point, could you talk a bit about your background in animation and the various hats that you wear?
1: Uh, sure. Um, I guess I started animating kind of seriously in college um, under the mentorship of this independent animator named Chris Sullivan, who um, made this made a feature called Consuming Spirits that came out a few years ago. Um, and then since then, I've sort of tried to... I, I went to school, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and then I got my master's um, at CalArts and moved to LA and have tried to kind of balance some aspect of kind of doing commercial projects to earn money and then, and then doing independent projects kind of by any means necessary. Um, And I was in a group called late night work club, which was a kind of independent animation collective that released two anthologies of shorts. Um, Yeah. And I think that (laughs) covers it kind of.
0: So this new film, it's an original story of yours. Yeah 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 and i was interested in what sort of drew you to that subject matter initially or the kind of i guess dueling subject matters of like ai and also uh that sort of military component
1: yeah i think uh it's funny i the military part i think was because i've been kind of interested in technology as a theme for the last like couple of couple of projects and just like in my normal life um but i read this article It was in like 2014 it was it was an op-ed in the guardian um oh i forget the exact headline but it was basically like a drone manufacturer wrote an op-ed that said like predator drones are like like misunderstood (laughs) and then it was all about just like oh they've got bad branding but if like we could like realign the public's perception of of drones they would see that they're actually like really great i think just like the kind of key first of all i think it's funny that like the company that <laughs> names their drones predator or reaper would be like you guys they're misunderstood they're actually really nice but i think that was the kind of you know key root of like oh misunderstood drone that's a funny that's a funny image mm. and i went through a phase where i was like i'm still in this phase but i was really into like terrence malick movies mm. and so i was thinking about like oh like it's like a days of heaven style monologue but from the perspective of a of a misunderstood drone. <laughs> And then I think it's like, so it's like that's sort of the spark. And then I think it's like um, other little questions that come up that help like trigger the idea of like, okay, like what if this, what if it was like a drone personality that was like programmed to be good? And then there's like, oh, what if like the good drone thought that it accidentally killed somebody? And then it's like, oh, I, I, I think like around that time. To animation takes so long, so none of the like technology is all that like cutting edge anymore. But like, there was that video that came out of like um Chinese, it was like a Chinese traffic camera that had like facial recognition and it, like drew boxes around and like identified what everything in the image was. So I saw that and I was like, oh, like that would be funny if like a piece of debris hit the ground during a demonstration and like created what it thought was a face. Mm. And so it was like, I think that idea kind of locked So it's like a sequence of kind of like questions. And then that was the like, Oh, there's the inciting incident. That could be the plot of a, of a movie.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that was, that was sort of where it started. And it's like, you know, it it never happened. That process probably was like three years of it just percolating in the back of my head. Like, Oh, there's a sort of kernel of a of a funny drone movie, and I think I had it before I'd even started on love streams, the ma- the film I made before that. Okay. and i it's like and i it's like right now I've got like three ideas that are in that phase of like there's some core, but I don't quite know what the movie is yet, you know, yeah. kind of yeah. ideation phase, yeah,
0: yeah, as far as how it's come together, uh, it's a' very polished piece of work, and I think a lot of people would watch it and assume they were watching an episode of something or a film or something that a network or a streaming platform had really put together a a chunky budget for. Yeah, it doesn't sort of scream independent animation, but I feel like it it very much is in terms of the kind of spirit that you approached it with. And a lot of indie animators would love their films to turn out this way. So I thought it would be a great opportunity to chat to you about the realities of getting a personal project in that state, getting it so finely tuned. totally, And so to kind of tear the band-aid off, did you go into it with any kind of budget sort of put aside? Uh, yes and no. I,
1: so I brought on, uh, the first person who joined the project was, uh, my producer, Jeanette, who, um, is also in late network club and she's my friend. We go way back, way back. And she runs the glass animation festival. So I brought her, so like, it was almost like, it was like a dinner where it was like, Jeanette, do you want to be like the producer on this project? And I felt like she was like, yeah, what do I, what does that mean? What do I do? And I'm like, I don't know, but like, <laughs> we need to like be more serious about this shit. Cause like, otherwise it's going to stay small and like a hobby and a producer feels like the kind of right step to, you know? And, and I think that was just a critical part of like, okay, we're going to take this seriously. And, and, and even like on, on, on my previous films, it's like, because they're it's mostly just me. It's like, it's just done so loosely where it was like, I don't think Love Streams ever even really had like a storyboard. It just was so, you know, it was like, what do I need a storyboard? I'm doing it. So I can just do really crappy, like chicken scratch thumbs. Um so I think that was an important first step of just like trying to set this up like legit. And I think it was also like I had met more kind of European animators, and I think it was almost trying to like. Do a facsimile of that, like European, you know, state financing method, except there was no money, but just trying to like put on the airs of like, this is a real project. See? And then um, we got a grant from the Berkeley Film Fund, which wasn't for much, but it was enough to kick off Wes McLean, who did the background art, which is a huge part of. (laughs) <laughs> why it looks polished just because the background painting is like really really good and i really lucked out that he hadn't he didn't have a lot of experience with animation background painting and so i so i think it was sort of like he wanted to prove himself and uh, and maybe just didn't know what he was getting into totally and now he's like such an in-demand production designer um so i was really lucky to have him that definitely elevated it because uh you know it's like it's sort of a non-professional situation. And we lucked into this talent that now is super duper professional. But at the time, I think he didn't have enough professional experience to immediately say no, which he should have. Um, But then it's like, yeah, so then it was at that point, I think it was a little bit like laying tracks in front of a moving train where I was like, Okay, Wes is doing backgrounds, I'm gonna have to finish this one way or another, because now I've committed to it, the grant forces me, you know, they're like, you have to be done at a certain date. Uh, even though the amount of money they gave wasn't nearly close enough to actually make it. Um, and then, and then I went through a phase where I was trying to kind of find like international co-financing and that just kept hitting walls because it's like, it just, it seems like that system is not meant to, to, I I don't know. It was like, it it had, it had progressed too far on the state side to make sense to like slot into a uh uh like a European or Canadian financing model because it was like all the top talent was kind of already um delegated to to people in the US uh and then the big one was I got a Guggenheim Fellowship which was again like not quite enough money to make the movie but it was enough money for me to spend the time and so it's like i ended up animating a lot of it um i don't know it's like doing a tricky balancing act of like i can if it's just me i can stretch this out for really long and it'll take longer to get this level of polish but i know that i can get it there and kind of live cheaply and and um on the other hand it's like these days uh, you know it's like just an exchange of time money quality you know those three things kind of always in a fight so i'm like I don't know if I would do it again alone just because it was like, it was such a high volume of animation work that it just took a really long time to make. Yeah. And then it's also like, you can only get the Guggenheim once sum so back to square one right. on the next <laughs> film. So there's no, there's no lasting lessons other than just basically like winning the lottery on a grant. Yeah. But I would say that the, the, um, the nice part about that is um, grants in the us are sort of so much more like relegated to a kind of like high art zone Mm. that i i think they don't get a lot of like animation submissions so i I, my sense is that it's sort of like it's almost easier to stand out um, if you're making something like this because there aren't a lot of independent animators in the states who are like going for a guggenheim with like a narrative short film Mm. and and the other positive side is they aren't going to blanch at all at like like, Oh, it's a, you know, a political topic, it's kind of a a dark thing. It's, you know, predator drones, whatever, whatever that would turn off a kind of commercial place. It's like, those things are advantages. So I think I knew that from the get go, like, I don't think I ever tried to pursue any kind of like traditional like LA industry style funding for this just because it's like, the pitch is so bad in that context. Yeah. But yeah,
0: so with a Guggenheim grant then and the other grant, are they then pretty hands off?
1: Yeah, no, Guggenheim is super hands off. They're like, I mean, yeah, they, they were extremely cool. Cause I think they're a little, the, the mandate there is sort of, it's you apply with a project, but they're less intense about like, like, um they don't audit your budget they you know I think they just want you to like keep pursuing your your thing kind of um and I I had heard stories when I got it about people where it was like oh yeah I got it and then 12 years later I finished the project I told them I was doing Mm -hmm. um but the Berkeley one was a little bit more like um uh rigorous about like a year into the grant, I had to give them a kind of budget breakdown and a big letter explaining what we spent all the money on and blah blah. blah. But um, but then also, yeah, I mean, everyone was cool. I didn't get any like weird pushback or anything. Both places were were super supportive of the project, um, so that that was that was good. Because I've heard yeah horror stories about like like auditing every line of what you spent every cent on, and you know, yeah. I'm glad I'm glad that didn't I didn't have to go through that.
0: Hmm. So when it came to crewing up with, you know, some finances in place was your approach to kind of, because you mentioned some people that you knew were involved, was it mainly a pool of people that you already knew and worked with, or did you have a call out for people to apply in a sort of traditional way? No.
1: Yeah. I, it was all just reaching out to people. No, no open calls. I mean, the biggest one was I found Wes through the the background designer, Wes through my friend charles the uh charles hutner uh, uh another late network club member i just hit him up and said like hey i'm looking for like a, a bg designer who's going to take on this entire film and he had done an open call for another project like a few months earlier and i was just like did you find someone in that open call so he sent me a spreadsheet and i guess wes had reached out to him in that open call and wasn't a good fit for charles's project but then i saw Wes, so wes was i think one of the only people who I like really had never met before. Oh, and then um, I did this trip to Montreal for a festival, the Sommet du Cinema Animation, whatever it's called, yes. uh, which is a super great festival at the at the uh, Montreal Cinematheque. And um, I met uh, Emily Page, who's with this this company called um, this studio called Ed Films. Um, And we talked to them a little bit about maybe getting involved more seriously when there was possibly going to be some Canadian financing. They were going to be the sort of Canadian producing studio. So I had all these conversations with them about pipeline stuff. And um, one of the co-founders of that studio is a real like kind of like CG After Effects blender head. And so we had all these pipeline conversations about like marrying the 2D animation with a blender drone. Mm -hmm. And then the financing fell apart and it was kind of like, oh, okay, well, that's that. And then I reapproached them a few months later to say, like, hey, I know the financing fell apart, but we did all this work on the pipeline. Like, would you guys still want to get involved and just do the drone itself? Hmm. And like, we can just like cut a deal. And we did. And that was really great. And I've worked with them now again on another project. So yeah, ED Films in Montreal. And I didn't know them until we were kind of, you know, seeking out collaborators on this project. Yeah. But then it was like, like Vincent Swee. Did some animation on it and he's like an old friend nicole stafford who i guess i maybe never worked they they didn't work on any of my previous films but uh they're people who i've just known for a long time and like have admired their work and um and then Skillbard, who i've worked with a bunch and yeah i don't know i mean it, it, and it's, it's that's the most fun when you kind of bring in someone who you're like you know they're really good at something and you and and I think because the budget was kind of limited, it was more like targeted. Like, I know you're really good at this, so I'm just going to get you to do that that in like the most kind of like precision striked way, as opposed to, oh, I'm hiring a generalist animator who's going to animate, you know, five minutes of the movie or whatever. Hmm. So, yeah.
0: yeah. You're also working with a very tight script. And it's another thing I think that kind of makes it feel like you know, something that was more conceived in a traditional way, more traditional industry way. It feels like very sort of tightly written and authentically mm-hmm. written. And there's a really nice kind of through line of that sort of satire, that sort of witty juxtapositions of dialogue and the on screen text. And as I recall, like spoken dialogue wasn't as common in your other films. Like I know you had the kind of on screen exchanges and, um, stuff like, uh, love streams and I'm not a robot, but I'm just sort of interested, I guess, in like, as a, as a person who writes the scripts for their films, is it just all kind of how it comes out of you or do you workshop it at all? Is there any kind of feedback before you actually going to go into production production?
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, with this, it was the first time I, th- I think that like my rule of thumb and some of this was like, like, Different stages of the project were gonna to have to be shared a lot more. So it was like write a script. you can just send someone cold and say read this script and you don't need to like explain anything else. They'd be like, I read it and I understood the movie you're trying to make. just because I think that like there was a plan early on to like apply like just like apply for a lot more things. And so I think that that um, continued kind of throughout the whole process where it was like, I mean, the lucky thing is if you're if you're writing and you're also like doing a lot of the animation and editing, it's like there's stuff in the movie that got added really, really late that was like, I'm gonna write a brand new scene at the like 11th hour and implement it super quickly just because it's like, you know, I don't know that if if there were a like another screenwriter who had left the project, that would maybe be a little bit trickier. but um yeah, so so the script got written. but if you read the original draft of the script, it was like I think the big thing that happened is like when it got turned into an animatic, there was a lot more workshopping of just like, I mean, it's it's such a stupid process of just like me recording the dialogue into my phone as scratch tracks and putting, laying it out with the animatic. But I think in that part of the process is where you really figure out like, like you're saying, like, it's like, oh, this juxtaposition of visuals to spoken dialogue to whatever, to musical tone creates, you know, X, Y, and Z feeling. And also for me, I think that's where it's like, Oh, I wrote something that does not sound natural at all to say out loud. So let me like just goof around on my phone for 30 minutes, trying out different ways of phrasing it to kind of end up at the same place, Um, which I also hadn't done. And I learned this a lot of this stuff from from my buddy Joe Bennett, who is like a real animatic master. Um, I just saw that it was like that is his animatic and script were his phases of like iterate a million times and get it pretty precise in that phase. Compared to Love Streams, right, I think I, I hadn't storyboarded the ending when I was like 75% of the way through the movie. I was like writing as I went, which now I think is like a crazy way to work. But it you know it works for certain independent animators just because you don't have the constraints of like a regular production where you have to go through the like different, different stages. So yeah, I, so I think it was like important to like if, if you saw the full pass of the first animatic, it was like pretty much exactly what the movie is now pretty much word for word. And then I I think it also gave me the confidence where it was like, yeah, I hadn't done a lot of spoken dialogue before. And anytime I had, I'd never worked with professional actors like in previous films it had always been like my buddy or, you know, I think my dad did a voice, you know, in a a project. So you're working with kind of like, okay, you can only get out of my dad certain things. So you have to kind of slot that in, meet him at, at, at his level for a kind of natural delivery um but then for this it was like okay i knew that was another thing with jeanette where i she had really cultivated this attitude that i think was so good which is like it doesn't hurt to ask any for anything from anybody you know all they can say is no so pretty early on we started reaching out to actors and we got um the, i think the first actor we cast was this guy jim Truefrost, who I knew really well from The Wire and he was like my first pick. He plays Pres on The Wire. Um, and so when he said yes, it was like, oh shit, okay. And, and I think that part of that, so part of that, like workshopping the dialogue was kind of like, by the time I'm in the booth with him, I wanted to feel really precise because he's definitely like doing us a favor. He's not gonna want to workshop dialogue in the room, you know, so like get it to a point where I feel really confident with like no this is the kind of tone I want this is the kind of intonation blah blah blah. um but yeah definitely a learning curve on that I I, like just a lot of new new things on this project but I don't know real production stuff is is fun I mean you know it's like even if it feels like like Jen and I feel like little kids who are like simulating it it feels like then when you're in the booth with a guy who you know from a TV show you like it is like oh wait this is for real yeah you know And I think, like, having the, like, like, to me, spending what little money you have on those, like, taking those things really seriously of like recording it nicely with a real actor. I I think that is also part of kind of elevating it. And, uh, you know, that it's like the animation, uh, that's my domain that I feel really comfortable with. But those other things being kind of at a professional level, I think. To me, that's where the whole thing elevated to a kind of like, oh shit, okay, this is a, you know, a real movie, not just some stupid little thing I'm doing as a hobby in my bedroom, you know? Yeah.
0: It is an interesting one with, with casting and how well it can work just with friends and family from time to time. Like um, yeah. Like, like, World of Tomorrow, I think would be a good example of that. Like, it just suits the film. But I think it's a, good, yeah. it's a good, I guess, instinct to sort of look at the project you have and, and intuit, okay, this actually needs a certain type of performance or a certain level of professionalism, whereas something else, you know, it might just sort of suit the tone a bit better to be a bit more informal. Um, and as you say, asking, there's really no reason not to, you know, that's kind of what people are there for and just putting the idea out there. Uh, I think when people have gotten, you know, actual actors on board, and I know a few like British productions that have gotten, you know, some fairly well-regarded British character actors in their films have been really flawed that they were able to. And I think it's something worth reinforcing just to people listening. It's, you know, there's really no harm in, in just reaching out and just seeing, you know, where they're at, what they might want for it. Right. Usually people are pretty game. Usually a lot of people like animation. Cause so. it's
1: so much easier for them that it's like an hour out of their day. Yeah. And like, we, we paid like, you know, SAG minimums. So it's kind of like still that feeling of like, well, for an hour, yeah, fuck it, you know, yeah like may as well. And I think there's even, I mean, this is the element of LA stuff that I actually like is I think that everybody is so nervous all the time about missing out on things that like, I think that if you're really confident about what you're doing, it's like, you know, if, if, if you're making, if, if, If you got the call saying, Hey, I'm making this short called Whiplash. Do you want to be in my short, Whiplash? You know, it's like the people who said yes to that, it's like the best decision they ever made in their entire Mm -hmm. lives, you know? So I think that there is some element of that in almost everything, you know, for better or for worse, that like you're like, No, I don't want to do an animated short. But then you're like, But wait a minute what if this is the worst decision I ever make? Not, <laughs> you know, which obviously it isn't. But I feel like just having that in the back of your head, at least prompts people to take things seriously. If, if you're like a working actor, I feel like it's like, you'd be surprised that you'd be surprised at how many people at least read the drone script. I mean, which to me, it's like, that doesn't get you anywhere. But for me, I was like, Oh, my God, like that person actually read it and said no, like, that's so exciting. <laughs> so yeah, it doesn't hurt to ask. And and uh, you know, uh, to me, even that part of the process is kind of fun because you feel engaged in a kind of real system of you know movie making, which uh, you know I think is exciting.
0: Yeah, going back a bit to the the look of the film and the character design and animation specifically, it's really interesting and kind of a hard one to dissect, which is usually something I'm kind of good at. But <laughs> I, I I really scrutinized this as I was watching it and. and struggle to sort of work out what the process was and uh looking at your kind of notes as, as i understand it it was that you used reference for the design like actual sort of people but not the animation is that correct it's sort of a mix of like yeah like when when
1: i first wrote the script there were drawings that got made of the characters that were kind of like fantasy casting of like this type of guy okay. and you can maybe kind of see it that it's like at this point it's maybe not worth hiding that it's like I think like Mindhunter had just come out. And so the main CIA guy is sort of based on Jonathan Groff from, from that show. Uh-huh. Like he was just like, like, that's my like archetype. But then for that character specifically, it was like, then when Jim got cast, he sort of went through a transformation of like, Oh, I'm going to make him look a little bit like Jim so that it feels like the voice is coming out of the face, you know, that that feels right. Um, and then i'll take i'll take a lot of photos and and sometimes videos when i'm doing the animation and never to like rotoscope or anything but just to like like kind of have a like you know for example like when the guy like lights the cigarette it was just like what you know like i don't want to invent the kind of mannerisms of what it looks like to actually light a cigarette so i'm going to take a take a reference and then sort of just like not even follow the timing or anything but just kind of the like broad sense of how the poses work uh i mean i think the 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 thing that i kind of backed in the two things that i kind of backed into that i would later regret is like the when wes did his first backgrounds i was sort of first and when i was first doing these kind of motion tests um it was really clear quickly that it was like oh shit, okay if the character is too flat it really pops off the background and doesn't feel like they're like in the same universe. So that was like the initial like, OK, the characters need to look a little bit realistic. They need to be lit a little bit more kind of seriously than I had done before. Um, like time of day is like an important thing that I need to like be considerate of in how they're how they're lit. Uh, and then the other thing is like, I don't know why I backed into this style, but it's like the characters like almost never stop moving. And so it's like almost every shot, the whole character is moving almost the entire time, even if they're like really slowly easing into something. It just almost never happens that they completely freeze, which was such a pain in the ass. (laughs) But just it. But it's just one of those things where you kind of make a style choice right at the beginning when you animate the first couple of shots. And then later on you're kind of like oh i wish i had done it where this character was static and i was just moving the jaw but that looks funky now that i've set this thing of like there's always something going on you know um and and i i tried this technique that i hadn't really done before i'd sort of experimented with a little bit on love streams where the head is like a completely detached asset that kind of gets married to the body later Hmm. so you can do a lot more subtlety in how the head rotates um I don't know. This might be like inside baseball, boring stuff, but like, yeah. So stuff that was like, again, I think it's like some of it's, some of it's practical just because you're kind of like, okay, I'm animating the first four shots and I'm making decisions right now that I'm going to have to live with for years and years. (laughs) And I'll think back to this moment and think, what was I thinking, you know, Mm -hmm. and now I'm stuck in it and, and soon I'll be dead.
0: (laughs) you'd take on quite a lot of the character animation yourself. Yeah. But then brought on other people for certain scenes or certain characters. Yeah. That doesn't come across as, like, it doesn't feel like it was animated by different people. It has that feeling of a a major production where everyone is working in a very consistent way. Oh, cool. And because, I guess, of of the specific approach that you took that you just kind of outlined. How was that, I guess, kind of working with other people and kind of communicating your workflow and your general approach to it? It's funny. I mean, it, it
1: the way it d- divided up was like, like kind of more specific. Yeah. Of like, I think to avoid that thing, I gave ca- uh, the full character of, for example, the, the, the like second CIA officer, the woman who comes in at the end, um, that entire character was done by Vincent Sui. So that was a nice way of like, that has its, like it's, there's continuity within it. I gave him like the character design, so it sort of looks like my style. But like, because he could do it end to end, It's just consistent where I think if I had animated that character at the end, you'd notice my shot because I'm less I'm not as good of an animator as Vincent. So just be like, wait a minute. One of these shots looks fucked up. (laughs) And then it was like all the effects like smoke and stuff. That was like Nicole Stafford, which is also just like, I think I just suck at animating that kind of like it's like knowing my own limitations Where I'm like, I cannot animate cigarette smoke. It just eludes, you know, my animation abilities. But then it was like basically everything else. I did. And then I had um, uh, an assistant, Kyle Brooks, who um, started out kind of doing color and then he started doing some some in-betweens in color. And then by the end, he was sort of had developed enough as an animator that he started taking some shots as well. Like when all the characters are pointing at the drone in the sky, like that was like, okay, Kyle, you can handle this one. Because it's sort of not any of the primary characters, so they can just be kind of animated unto themselves, and there doesn't have to follow the same kind of continuity. But yeah, I think, and uh, uh, you know, it's a little bit out of necessity. I'm like excited for a phase when I could maybe open it up to like on a new project that I'm just starting on. I do have a character designer, and I've never worked with a character designer before, and I'm seeing how amazing it is to actually have like, oh, this is like really consistent. A bunch of animators could all hop on and animate this character like i see why people people hire character designers just because everything like anytime i do something i feel like it's just kind of like haphazardly done because that's like not my prof- it's sort of out of necessity that i would like do character design not because i feel like i'm like the strongest character designer okay. but maybe I, I don't know that's probably normal for independent animators where you're like sort of doing a so-so job of all of a bunch of different kind of designated industry positions, mm-hmm. but you're not like necessarily a specialist at any single one, something like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, absolutely. And I, and thinking of all the roles that you did take on, do you have any kind of tips on how not to sort of, I guess stretch overstretch yourself or burn out? Cause you want, I guess you, you, a certain degree of control over certain aspects of the film, but you also can't have it like dominate your life. So, yeah, I mean, how did you find that I guess overall and were there any sort of approaches you took to kind of make that not too much of a struggle? I think, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that
1: uh, you have to find like a process that on some level you enjoy, like the times that I've tried other, like when I was in school and I would try like stop motion or like cutouts and stuff. I just hated the actual process. And and I think it's like if there's any part of the process that you really, really hate, to me, that will make it so that you'll never finish because it's just like like and work, work is work. Like 2D animation is not, it's not fun all the time. But I feel like it's like I feel so comfortable at this point, like running that marathon just because I'm like, yeah, I can like get in the groove. There's nothing that feels like too crazy. There's like challenges, but like the actual process of like character animation, I just I just feel good doing it. And like, oh, now it's time to color. Coloring is its own part of the process where I can like put on a movie and kind of zone out or, or like in between, whatever. Elements of the, basically I feel like it's like dialing in like every element of what's on my plate doing this project felt good. And I think on this project, identifying again, like I really am bad at smoke. That is a part of the process that I'm so happy to just like step away from. And probably most importantly is backgrounds where it's just like I, I always hated doing it. I would put it off to the last second and procrastinate on it. I didn't like doing it. You know, it just was a part of the process that I, I just never enjoyed. So, drone was nice because I felt like it's like even though I was running a marathon, it's whittled down where every bit of work I'm doing on the project is is fun, you know, or or it feels like I'm like, this is the thing that I like doing. It's it's the part of it that I want to get better at, if anything, versus the thing that feels like kind of an obligation. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's like psychological. Like I mean, there were phases where it was like, I think probably when it was like, it's a 15-minute movie, there was a phase where because it had like temp temp music and temp sound with the animatic, and I was kind of like, constantly comping as I went to build a kind of rough assembly as I was going through. Um, there was a phase when it was like 40% finished or like maybe like 35% finished, which represented like a decent amount, you know, it's like you're like three and a half or four minutes of animation in. So it feels like a pretty big chunk. And I, and you start showing the cut to people because you felt like it was at that stage. And that is when it just feels like the world, like, Oh there's just an insurmountable amount of work to go. There's a decent chunk finished, but it feels like shit. <laughs> and it like really makes you feel bad. And it was basically I mean and it it, it feels that way I think basically until Skillbard sent me their first original music cue. Mm-hmm. It felt completely awful and like the movie wasn't going to work or come together. <laughs> so I think it's like stealing yourself for, and I feel like a now done it enough that I kind of know, like, this isn't real, you know, when Martin Scorsese puts together his rough assemblies, he he says he throws up. So you're in good company. Like you're fine. <laughs> Everybody feels this way. If you gave up right now, you'd never finish anything because it's never going to feel any different. But I don't know. I, it, I wish it were, I wish it were more of a romantic process, but it's really not. I guess that's maybe the lesson <laughs> I've learned.
0: As you mentioned, uh, you worked with Skillbad again, was this the first time you actually worked with like a, a full orchestra or the first time they worked with a full orchestra?
1: Yeah. Uh, I think both. And that was totally their idea. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I I'm just, ha- I mean, it was nice just cause they were like, we have this, this idea to do this and we have a, um, a contact, uh, uh, Finn who, who, um, will lead the orchestra and and uh i don't know exactly how they know him but um they proposed it and i was like yeah let's let's do it and it was crazy and and like that i wasn't even really part of that process like all the music we did just back and forth with me and skillbard was um uh them sending me their kind of digital versions of all the tracks and and working it all out and then they were like okay and then it went through some kind of magical notation process and uh ended up on the other side that like when they sent me those first record just the like raw recordings it was so cool i don't know uh again another part of the process that just feels like movie magic like whoa like all these people are playing this original music for this soup. If I think back to kind of the earliest parts of like Jeanette and I just being like, Oh, what, you know, how do you make a movie or whatever, you know? And then the, that feels like it's like the cathartic end point is watching like, like 40 people you don't know playing the original music on real instruments. Yeah.
0: So you didn't have any kind of input as far as like reference to other scores or,
1: Oh no. Yeah, totally. I, what I mean is like, like all of that stuff happened way before the orchestra got involved right. and that was just, Skillbard going back and forth, but yeah, no. I sent a lot of a lot of reference and like, um, and I, I had been kind of animating. I know I think composers hate this, so I, I tried really hard to do the thing of like, I had been animating to attempt score, just from movies. You know, it was like a lot of um, like Phantom Thread and like the Social Network soundtrack. You know, stuff stuff to just like set the tone. I think for me like it helped a lot with like oh no you can let this moment breathe a lot more because the music will carry it emotionally for a little bit longer so like don't work don't be so anxious about the length and then at some point in the process i like just pulled everything out so it was silent so i like tried tried to basically just like forget all of my original music cues to let and and i i think i told Skillbard like just listen to it once so you kind of get a sense of like my inspirational vibe, but don't feel married to it. And I will try to forget it as quickly as possible. But yeah. And, and and I think that there was a lot of like, here's the sort of like tonal feelings for certain scenes, but also I think a big thing was wanting them to do this kind of like central Newton theme that like keeps going and di- like has different iterations, but keeps like coming back. I don't know. I, re- I like, I think they're so good at doing like a kind of like earwormy hook they did it on love streams just when they first sent me the first like love streams pass that it had that kind of central melody. And I was like, Oh, I really like the idea of like the kind of like repeated character motif thing. Um, and this movie is long enough that it can kind of like come back in different ways over the course of the film. And like, if you compare the kind of like the opening motif to the ending motif, it's like uh, a nice arc, you know, helps, helps the story, etc. cetera.
0: So once it was done, then were there any kind of unique approaches to your like distribution strategy different from other work that you've done?
1: I think that, I mean, I feel like in previous, it, in previous films, it's been, I feel like I've gone online really, really quickly. Like, I think love streams was finished like three days before late Night network club two released. Right. So, and I had this experience of like doing that just immediately disqualifies you from certain festivals. Um, and I think I just had a, a feeling like, oh, I want to, I want to let this have a little bit of a like theater life. Um, and, I, and then COVID happens and I think I was like, oh, okay, maybe I'll go back on that. But then it was like by summer, you know, spring 2022, it was feeling like, okay, things are, things are coming back a little bit. And. Like, yeah, before I drop this online, I'd like to, I'd like to have it screen at least a few times where you can't see it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um and even for me, I felt like I was like, I think I really needed that catharsis of like, I've been away, you know, festivals and theatrical screenings are such a huge part of my life. I was like, I've been away from it for so long. So I think to for the movie to like feel complete, I need to like see it in a room full of people. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, it's funny. I guess it's like, it's unique for me, but it's actually it was reverting back to like a completely traditional way of doing it. But maybe that's like the iconoclastic way. But, uh, but I also think like 15 minutes, uh, just like the long, I, I don't know. I'm a little bit like nervous about just like, how can you position this where somebody will actually sit down? How can you incentivize somebody on the internet internet to sit down and watch a 15 minute short that like maybe... I don't think it requires a lot of work, but it like at least requires like kind of maybe more attention because it's, you know, a little bit subtle. There's parts where it's like visual stuff. So I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> don't have an answer. <laughs> as
0: far as releasing it online, you mentioned in the email that it's going up on YouTube. Is it just YouTube or is it that you hadn't released on YouTube before to begin with?
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, it's just, it's just going on YouTube. And I feel like, I mean, uh, it seems like things have kind of whittled down now where like YouTube just feels like it's the way to uh, like, if you're trying to find an audience, YouTube is the, is now just the only spot just because I feel like Vimeo has (laughs) collapsed slightly as a place where people discover new films. But also, I don't know. I mean, it's like, it's one of these funny things my I have a niece who's like who's who's um 12 and she shows me animation videos on YouTube that are like really well produced. I mean they're like not my thing, they're like kind of like anime inspired. It's weird. It's like it almost looks like a trailer but it's not a trailer for anything. It is the film, nice. which is kind of like brilliant. But she'll show me stuff where I'll be like, oh, cool, weird. How'd you find this? And then I'll look and it'll have like 100 million views. And it'll be like, oh, this is the most popular thing ever. (laughs) I'm the old person who has no idea what's going on. So I think that like I have a sort of personal, I I would like to engage. I I mean, to me, I'm just like, I don't know how one engages with an audience like that on YouTube. And probably those people don't want to watch Drone. But to me, there's just a more interesting thing of like, Uh, You know, there's festival audience people, there's Vimeo audience people, there's like my friends, but I'm curious if it could possibly reach outside of that smaller group and like, engage with, I don't know, communities that are just like a little bit different or like, be seen in a context where it's maybe less about animation and more about the kind of like, politics or themes or whatever, um, and and engaged with that way. And the kind of animation part of it is sort of incidental. I don't know. So we'll see that's going to be an experiment for me, um, uh, on YouTube, just like seeing where, where you can kind of deposit it or how much you can help it, like get into an algorithmic flow with communities that you maybe didn't totally expect, but we'll see. <laughs> Fingers crossed.
0: Excellent. Well, the best of luck for it. And, uh, thanks again so much for talking to us and uh, so much detail about this. I think people will really find this interesting. And I think it it helps demystify some of the really intimidating aspects of taking on a project like this. So hopefully uh, folks out there will kind of take it on board and maybe apply it to their own work. But uh, yeah, Sean, thanks again so much. Cool. Hey, Ben, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Sean for joining me. And you can check out his incredible work, including Drone and some wonderful making of documentation, at his website, seanbuckaloo.com. He's also on Twitter and Instagram, at Sean Buckaloo. If you're listening before the film launches, check out the article page on Squiggly accompanying this episode to see the YouTube premiere link, and be sure to tune in. As mentioned at the start of the episode, this series accompanies my book-independent animation, developing, producing, and distributing your animated films, which is available from all reputable booksellers, although I rarely see it in the wild, it's not hard to find online, and if you order directly from the publisher website, Routledge.com, you get free shipping. They also tend to have pretty regular sales, so follow my socials, facebook.com slash ben Creative, and Instagram, at Ben L. Mitchell, because I usually give them a plug when they're happening. Now, a shrewder salesman wouldn't mention that, in the spring, an updated second edition of the book will be released, with a bunch of new case studies and brilliant contributors, so you might want to hang tight until April and get that version. Uh, Go ahead and get both of them, no one will judge you for it. All being well, you can pre-order the second edition from March 21st. It'll feature input and exclusive insight into the working processes of some of the industry's most noteworthy indie animation talents, including Signa Bauman, Adam Elliott, Don Hertzfeld, Kirsten the Poor, Robert Morgan, David O'Reilly, Pez, Bill Plimpton, Rusto, Chris Shepard, Joseph Wallace, and dozens more. It brought me a lot of joy putting it together, and I hope you folks get a kick out of it too. You can follow Squiggly on Twitter, at Squiggly, on Instagram, at SquigglyAnimation, and Facebook.com slash SquigglyMagazine. I've been Ben Mitchell, and until next time, happy animating, independent or otherwise.